Genesis 21, at the end of this chapter, Abram does three things, right? He, he plants a tree. There you go, now you see. This is the reminder. He plants a tree, we'll get to this tree later, but he plants a tree, he calls on the name of the Lord, and he gives God, he calls on God by a new name that we haven't had yet in scripture. He gives him a new nickname. Remember I was talking to my, Sonia about my daughter, our conversation about nicknames, and, uh, and we have this book that goes through the names of God, and we said, well, God has so many nicknames because God is so great that we give him so many different nicknames. So, so God gets a new nickname here in this chapter, El Olam. We'll get to that. So, and he does these things, planting a tree, calling on El Olam. He does these things in response to the events of this chapter, which contain, you know, three somewhat yet kind of confusingly related stories, right? Uh, they, they, are related, they are related thematically because uh, the first two stories, for example, of these three, the first two have to deal with the two sons of Abram. The second and the third story both have to deal with a well. There's a well in both of those. So they're, they're thematically remated, uh, related to each other. Um, but yeah, they seem to be, in, in another sense, somewhat unrelated. But they all are driving toward this act of worship at the end of this chapter, where Abraham plants a tree and gives God a new name. And in order to get to that story of him planting the tree, I want to tell you kind of the backstory of these three other stories, okay? So we're going to look at three stories today. We're going to look at the story of the disregarded wife, the story of the discarded servant, and a story of a discouraged wanderer. And basically what we want to get to by the end of the chapter is it's all the same story to a degree. It's all one story. The story of the disregarded wife. All right, so just to review where we've been kind of in the last nine or so chapters of Genesis, but looking at those nine chapters in Genesis from Sarai's perspective, Sarai who is later given the name Sarah, okay? Think of Sarah's life. In, back in Genesis chapter 10, think of her, or chapter 12, think of Sarah's walk with God. At nearly 60 years old, at the time of life when most women would be kind of uh, slowing down and enjoying their grandchildren, enjoying kind of the family and the stability that 60 years of hard labor would have given them. At 60 years old, Sarah's husband tells her, it comes in one day and says, we are no longer going to be worshiping the gods that our fathers have served. And God has spoken to me. And she might have said, well, which God? And he said, no, no, not those gods that our fathers served. This, this God that we haven't served before, this, this one God, this creator God, has revealed himself to me. And she says, well, what did he say? And he tells her, he says that uh, we have to leave. We have to leave uh, this, this only land we've known, the family, the community. He's told us that we've got to uproot and leave. And she says, well, where are we going? And he says, I don't know. He just told me we got to leave and that he would show me where to go. And he, and he, and he says some other things. He says, and Sarah, he's, he's told me that he's going to make me a great name, a great reputation, and that, uh, and that I'm going to be a founder of a, of a great nation. 
And that, and that through me, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And can you imagine if your husband came home, wives, and started talking like that? And so Sarah dutifully packs everything they own, says goodbye to everyone that they have known, and follows her husband into this unknown land. Saying goodbye, friends, family, community. And shortly after arriving in this land, right, uh, God again speaks to her husband and says something even a little bit more unsettling. He, sa- he tells her that, he says, to my offspring, God is going to give this land. To my offspring. And, and, and think of how unsettling and, and maybe even how Sarah would have taken that. She has been, I mean, one of the, 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 first, the first ways in which we're introduced to Sarah in the scriptures is that she's barren that she's past the time of being able to provide for Abraham offspring. And so they get to this new land, and he says, yes, this is the land, and God has said he's going to give us to my offspring. You can imagine Sarah's fears in this moment. Well, how is God going to give my husband offspring when I haven't been able to give him offspring over these many decades? Is there going to be another woman in the picture? Am I going to be out of the picture? What's going to happen? And her fears initially seem to be pretty well-founded because the first thing that happens when they get to this new land is a famine comes, they run down to Egypt, and on the way to Egypt, Abraham kind of nudges her in the caravan and says, hey, hey, you know, when we get to Egypt, just so you know, I mean, I'm, God has told me I'm pretty important to this plan of his, that, that, that through me and my descendants, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. When we get to Egypt, do you just tell everybody that you're my sister? And, and then it will be, it actually says in scripture, it, they will deal well with me. And her fears, just think of her fears, how, how well-founded they were when she is then taken into Pharaoh's house. Another man's, to be another man's wife. And when the lie, only after Pharaoh finds out this lie is she transferred back into Abraham's care. And I said before, when we looked at that chapter, imagine that car ride home as they go back to the nation. And they go then back into that strange land, and Abraham continues to speak about this nation that God is going to make him, and these offspring that God is going to give him. And a full decade, a full decade of Sarah's life, she listens to her husband speak of this offspring. Until in Genesis 16, she breaks down. She's had enough. She's 70 years old now, and she gives her maidservant Hagar to her husband. I'm not able to give you these children that you're so convinced that God will give to you and you keep talking about. So here, take my maidservant, and maybe God, your God will give us children through her. And no sooner does the maidservant become pregnant than Sarah realizes her mistake, and she lashes out at her husband for causing her to do such a thing, she begins to abuse her servant only to have her run away and later return to the household. And then Sarah is powerless to watch over the next 13 years as her husband celebrates the birth of his son through her servant. And for the next 13 years, she watches as Hagar's son Ishmael grows into a man groomed to be her husband's heir. But at least Abraham, her husband, has stopped coming to her with talks of an offspring. 
until the boy's almost 13 years old. And when they're just about to celebrate Ishmael's kind of coming of age into manhood, Abraham again comes into Sarah's tent and says, Sarah, I've got news. God spoke to me again. Ishmael's not the son he's been talking about. You'll have a son, Sarai. And that message that Abraham is confirmed shortly later when three men appear at, in front of Abraham's tent and they find out that one of them is the Lord himself. And it tells Abraham to not call your wife by the name Sarai anymore. She shall be called Sarah. And she is told that Sarah, in less than a year, will have a son. And Sarah la- here, overhears this conversation and she laughs. She says, after I'm worn out, will I have pleasure? And she laughs at this ridiculous promise that for over two decades has taken her from country to country and land to land, has disrupted her life in her retirement, in her old age. And now she said that she will be given a son. And she laughs. And the Lord says, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you. And about this time next year, Sarah will have a son. And Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And this is the only word spoken to Sarah in the scripture by the Lord. Yes, you did laugh. A bit of a rebuke. Finally, after 25 years of God speaking to her husband, it's recorded that God speaks to her directly in the form of a rebuke. But you might think that finally, now that the Lord has directly spoken, that said, in less than a year, your wife Abraham will bear a son to you, the son of the promise, you might think that Sarah's position in the family would be secure, but the very next story, Abraham goes and he does it again. Gives his wife away again. The same deceit that he practiced 25 years before, he let Sarah once again be taken into a house of another man. What a life for Sarah. The story of a disregarded wife. 25 years of living with this man of promise. And think of Sarah's life over that time. The second story is the story of the discarded servant. I already told you the beginning of her tale. Hagar was likely a servant in Pharaoh's household, and when, when, uh, when Sarah went into Pharaoh's household, she probably was transferred into Sarah's care to be her maidservant. And if that's true, if that's the time where Hagar entered in, she has also been with this household, this family, for nearly the entire time, 20, 25 years. She came with them into that land of Canaan. She served Sarah's faithfully until the day that Sarah brought her into Abraham's tent and it was told to her that she was expected to bear a child to Abraham in place of her barren mistress. And that's when Hagar's nightmare began. As soon as she does what she is expected to do, she, she gets pregnant with child. Her mistress starts abusing her to the point where her only option she feels to survive is to run away. And God meets her in the wilderness and says, Hagar, I've heard your suffering. I've heard your cries. You will bear a son. His name will be Ishmael, meaning God hears. Because I have 
heard. And I want you now to go back to Abraham and Sarah and you tell them, God has heard. And so she goes back to Abraham and Sarah's household, tells them God has heard, bears Abraham a son, and then for the next 13 years, you know, she, she's the other woman in this family. She's both mom and servant. And her hope that she rested her hopes on was this promise that her son would not be a servant like herself, but that he would be, grow up to be strong and free like a wild donkey. You know, unrestrained in the wilderness, he'll be a free man. However, and just imagine this, just imagine how she would have responded when her son was just about to enter manhood as the heir of Abram, and suddenly her world falls apart again. Her mistress, Sarah, is now to have a son, and he was, that son is to be the true heir. And in this chapter, we see Hagar, this mistress, Hagar being cast away and her son displaced. And so that's the question we have with Hagar in this, this displaced servant. What will become of her son? I mean, think of what the promises of God have done in, Sarah, in Hagar's life over these 20 years. And then we have the third story, the story of the discouraged wanderer. Abraham was 75 years old. 75 years old when God revealed himself to him. And said, leave everything you've known. Leave your household, your land, and your kindred. And go to the land I'll show you. And since that time, Abram has wandered throughout the land of Canaan. At one point, the Lord had him walk through the entire land. And every place where his sandals struck, that would be the land that he is given. However, after all these 25 years, the word that is most often used to describe Abraham through this entire time is the word stranger. Sojourner, foreigner, alien. After 25 years, he still doesn't even have a place. He doesn't have any, any land that he himself possesses. He set up his tents at one point in Shechem in the north, and a lot, another point all the way down toward the Negev in the south. And remember at the embarrassing episode we looked at last week when he goes outside of Gerar and he meets Abimelech, the king of Gerar, and Gerar treats him with such character and integrity. And at the end of that episode, Gerar says to him, look about my land and you can settle anywhere you like. But it's very clear what Abimelech says. You can have any place in my land. And after 25 years, Abraham is still trying to follow God into this land he's promised him but he's still a foreigner that doesn't own an inch of soil of his own. 25 years! Yeah, that's where we start this chapter. We start this chapter 25 years into these promises that have just changed and disrupted this family's life. 25 years of Abraham just trying to follow God Leave everything you know and go to the land I'll show you. I'll make you a great nation. I will give you an offspring. I'll give you a legacy. I'll give you a people. I'll make you a blessing to the nations around you. 25 years. It's been a hard 25 years. And we've seen all of those ups and downs that Abraham and Sarai and Hagar have gone through. And, and if we were only looking at Abraham's life from a worldly perspective, imagine this. Imagine somebody comes to you, and they're not going to have the story that Abraham has, but imagine somebody comes to you and says, hey, 
I came to Christ when I was a teenager. I'm now 45. I've been trying to hold on to Christ with every ounce of strength that I have. I have followed Christ. I've tried to be obedient to Christ. I know I've wandered at times, but I've just never ever seemed to experience any sort of the abundant life that Jesus has promised. I came that you might have life, that you might have it abundantly, and 25 years you're saying, I still am struggling to see God. And I wonder greatly from time to time whether it has been worth it at all to have responded to God's call so many decades before. When I, when I was in high school, mid-90s, there's a song that became popular. It was called, What's Up? You guys don't know that song, but it, I was reminded of that song because the first line of the song is, 25 years and my life is still trying to get up that great big hill of hope for a destination. And I cry sometimes when I'm lying in bed just to get it all out what's in my head. And I scream from the top of my lungs, what's going on? And that's the chorus. I say, hey, what's going on? And you can imagine 25 years, Abraham, Hagar, Sarah, going, God, what is going on? And then chapter 21 happens. So, so chapter 21 happens. And we just have to see the joy of chapter 21. Okay, the first story, the story of this, display, this uh, disregarded wife, God turns the tears of the disregarded wife into joyous laughter. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he has promised, and Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. And look at Sarah's response in verse 6. Sarah says, God, so Sarah who laughed, and Abraham who also laughed when receiving this promise, Sarah says, God has made laughter for me. The, the word uh, laughter in Hebrew is zak, which is why Isaac, her child, is named Isaac. He laughs. The one, the, 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 he laughs is the name Isaac. And Sarah says, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And you see in this chapter a couple of things, just right in these first couple of verses, this re repetition of this God who makes these unbelievable promises and has made these unbelievable promises to this family. The Lord visited Sarah as he said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised and he wasn't slow in keeping his promise as some count slowness. But at the time at which God had spoken of him. Or to him. And, and we see in this, it's kind of funny when you look at and just read these verses. Um, how, many, how many times Abraham's old age is referred to. Right? Verse 5, Abraham was 100 years old. And then uh, Sarah says, um, Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And kind of like, kind of this little dig at Abraham about how old he is and, and how God has been faithful to his promise. 
So in, in, in chapter 21, we see that God turns the tears of the disregarded wife into joyous laughter. We see God turns the fears of the, the discarded servant into a hopeful future. Right? Hagar, she's, she's driven out by Sarah. And, and as we read before, Abraham doesn't want her to leave because Abraham, he says, I, he was very, um, he, he didn't want to do this on account of his son. I mean, he loves Ishmael. He's been for 13 years pouring into Ishmael, considering Ishmael to be the heir of the promises. Yet God tells Abraham to let her go, to let them go. And Abraham wakes up early in the morning and gives his son up. He puts his son into God's hands. And, and please remember that next week. That Isaac is not the only son God has told Abraham to let go. And he sends Hagar and Ishmael away into the wilderness. And, and the water skin Abraham gave them on their shoulder soon drives up in the heat of the desert. And her son, who's a teenager at this point, grows weary, maybe heat stroke in the heat, and she sets him, places him under a small bush, and she goes off and she weeps because she can't see to bear her son die like this. And she's crying, and her son is crying, and they're both going to die alone in the desert, a displaced servant and her discarded son. In verse 17, And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, up, lift up the boy, hold him fast in your hand, and I will make him into a great nation. And God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went, and this, I believe, I believe this was a miraculous occurrence in the desert. And she went and she filled the skin with water, she gave the boy a drink, and God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. And so we see at the end of this chapter, chapter 21, we see that the boy is saved, the woman is freed, and the Lord has heard. And so God has turned the fear of the discarded servant into a hopeful future. And then finally, the last story, God secures peace and refreshing for the discouraged wanderer. Right, chapter 21 happens and this discouraged wanderer finds, secures a well of life. So Abraham is celebrating the birth of his son Isaac and Abimelech and the commander of his army come in, right? And, uh, and, and, and I don't know what Abimelech has seen. Maybe he's seen something in Abraham different than maybe what we've seen. But he sees in Abraham and he says, God is with you in all that you do. And swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants and my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you deal with me in the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham says, I'll swear. And so Abraham makes this peace treaty with Abimelech, but uses this opportunity to bring up this uh, occasion, to bring up this well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. So Abraham had dug this well, right? Uh, Abimelech had said to Abraham, you can dwell anywhere in my land that you want. So Abraham finds a place, he digs, and he dwells this well with his old hands, and Abimelech's servants come and they seize the well. I mean, obviously they can't take it away. So they must have forbidden Abraham and his uh, household to, to use the well. 
And so after they make the covenant, Abraham sets aside seven lambs as a witness that he, in fact, had dug the well. And Abimelech says, why, why did you do that? Why are you setting these lambs apart? And Abraham says, I'm, I'm setting these apart so that all men might know as a witness that I dug this well. Give me something here. I've been wandering, in the, I've been wandering and sojourning as a stranger for decades. Just give me a well, man. And so Abimelech says, all right. And they both swear an oath. Abimelech accepts the payment, and they call that place Beersheba because both of them swear an oath. And then Abimelech and Phicol, commander of his army, rise up, and they return to the land of the Philistines. So after 25 years of receiving the call of God to leave behind everything, Abraham has finally, after 25 years, at least gotten a well. Water. Life. He's secured a well in the land and he has peace with his neighbor. And yes, it's a small start, but it's something. And so they call that place Beersheba because there both of them swore an oath and Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and then returned home. And so that's what brings us now to the act of worship. Right? So these stories are what drive us toward this act of worship where God, sorry, where Abraham plants a tree calls on the name of the Lord, and gives God a new nickname, the God of everlasting, the God of eternity, El Olam. So what's the significance of the tree? I, I was walking to church today, and I was walking with Noemi, and I asked Noemi, and I said, Noemi, why do you think Abraham, I told her a little bit of the story, I said, why do you think he plants a tree? And she said, I forget what she said. And I said, I said, well, well, why a tree? You can worship the Lord in other ways. I said, uh, I said when, how do trees grow? And she said, the roots go down and they get the water. And I was like, yeah, that's right, that's right. I said, do, do trees grow fast or do they do, grow slow? She says, they grow really, really slowly. And, and I want to talk a little bit. I mean, this specific tree that Abraham plants is called a tamarisk tree. It's called a, a salt cedar. In, America, uh, in North America. Uh, the tree is one of the largest trees you can plant in the Middle East. In fact, here you go. There you go. That's, that's the tamarisk tree. Not, not the one he planted, maybe, but it's a tamarisk tree. It's an extremely, it's interesting, a couple things about this tree is it's an extremely slow-growing tree that is one of the largest trees in, in Israel. And it has to be cared for in order to do well. Very few grow in the wilderness. So, so Abraham plants this tree by this well that he's going to have to care for, and it's going to take a long time for this tree to grow into maturity. They're usually around communities where family plant them on their property. To a Bedouin, Bedouin or a Jew, you don't plant... I love this. This is a quote from a website that I got this from. You don't plant a Tamaris tree for yourself... You plant it for generations to come. I love that. You don't plant this tree for yourself. You plant it for generations to come. And so this planting of this tree is significant. Abraham has made other altars before. In fact, by, by this time we know he's made two altars at least, where he piles up stone, makes an altar to call on the name of the Lord and to commemorate what the Lord has done. But there's a difference between an altar that breaks down, and a tree that takes a long time to grow. And Abraham seems to recognize here something 
about the promises of God. That there's a connection to what he does in calling on the name of the Lord here at the end of the chapter and all those stories I've just been telling you about these 25 years of having a promise but not having the realization or the fruition of that promise. After 25 years, finally Abraham is starting to see the first, you know, the first leaves are starting to grow on this promise that God has given him. And so Abraham plants a tree, a slow-growing tree, and he calls and he gives God a new name. And what's the name that he gives God? He gives God this new name, El Olam, the God of eternity, the everlasting God. Olam, so, so Elmer Towns in a commentary explains, Olam means time or age. So, so God of the ages. But in the, the, the rabbis, Hebrew didn't have vowels, so sometimes the rabbis would play with the vowel pointings. And so the rabbis would also sometimes call this El Alam, which means the God of the secrets. So you play with that a little bit. And they would play with that a little bit and be like, this is the God of the mysterious eternity. This is a God of the ages. This is a God beyond time. And that we cannot know because he's the God beyond time we can't know the secret counsels of his will. And so Abraham plants this tree after 25 years, and he says, God, I now see when you give a promise, it's going to take a while. And God, I trust you because you are the God of the ages. In view of eternity, 25 years of wandering is nothing. It reminds me, this name of the Lord reminds me of uh, how, how John, Jesus' disciples, describes the Christian life in his letter. He writes them in 1 John. He says, in 1 John chapter 2, he's talking about this, this letter of assurance he's writing to the church. And he says, in that second chapter, he, he says very poetically who he's writing to and why. And he says, I write to you, for example, I write to you little children, and he says this to the young people, young in their faith. He says, I write to you, little children, because you know the Father and because you know your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And I love this idea, this picture of John writing to the young Christians or the young children in the church, kind of, we don't know exactly, could have been talking to both, but the young in the faith, John writes to them and said, I'm writing to you this letter of God's love and his assurance because you know two things. You know that God is your dad and you know that he has forgiven your sins for his name's sake. You know, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. You know that because of your sin, the bad stuff you do before a holy God, you know that God had to deal with that sin and you know that God has dealt with that sin in Jesus Christ. And you know that if you call on the name of Jesus, you'll be saved and your sin forgiven for his name's sake. And that's what you need to know, young Christians. That's what you need to know, young people. You need to know that to anyone who calls on him will be saved, that to those who receive Jesus Christ, to those who believe him, he will give a right to become child of God. And so Paul writes in Romans, we have the spirit now put inside of us that cries out, Daddy, Abba, Father. So I want to encourage you, young, young Christian, young child, Jesus loves us, this we know, 
The Bible tells us so. You can be a child of God. Your sins can be completely forgiven as you call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then John writes, I write to you, young men, young women, I write to you because, see, you don't just, you don't just, you don't just call on the name of the Lord. The Lord begins transforming you and working out His purposes in you. And so he says, I write to you, young men, because you're strong and because the Word of God now abides in you and because you have overcome the evil one. So the purpose of your salvation is not to just stay in that childlike faith, although you should always have that childlike wonder, but as you grow in God's ways, as His Word gets in you, as you learn how to say no to the world and to the flesh and to the devil, Know how to pray, Lord, uh, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Deliver us from evil. As you know how to overcome, as you get the Word of God inside of you, he says, I'm writing to you this letter of love and of assurance because you can know the Father. You can know His strength. But then he says, I write to you fathers. And here's where it comes back to these stories. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from beginning. I know you know him who is from the beginning, or we might say, you know El Alam. You know the God of the ages. You know the God who was and who is and who is to come. You know the God who does not change. You know Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday today, and forever. Right? You know the God who is greater than every season of life. Right? You know the God who, who, to this God, you know, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. You know this God who is unchanging through the mountaintop experiences you have in your life as a Christian and through the valleys that you experience in your life as a Christian. You know the God who is your shepherd who takes you through the valley of the shadow of death and you know the God who blesses you with a table in front of your enemies. Psalm 23. And so you know, fathers, and so this is the, so, so young Christian, we have, so somebody asked me what I'm preaching on this week and I said, well, I'm going to talk to a church that's mainly under 35 and talk to them about how God doesn't just solve problems in your life quickly, but that God is the eternal God that will work out His purposes in our, in our lives, not only through decades, but through generations. See, that's, that's why you plant a tree, calling on the name of the Lord, El Alam, because you recognize that these light, as Paul calls them, these light and momentary struggles, momentary struggles, what are your struggles in your life, Christian, but momentary? These light and momentary struggles are preparing for us a weight of glory to be revealed at the coming of the Lord. Isn't that amazing? These struggles, these trials, they're but light and momentary because of God everlasting, because of El Olam. And that's what Abraham has learned now after 25 years of walking at the Lord. That's, that's the hope for this disregarded wife. That's the hope for this discarded servant is that they all might see this God of eternity, Al-Alam, working out His purposes and His promises 
not only in the days of their life, but in the decades to come. And so I want to leave you with just a couple of thoughts. One who worships El Olam, the God of the ages. If you're here as a Christian, you worship the eternal God. But I want to show you a little bit of the implications of that worship of the eternal God and what that means for our lives. One who worships the eternal God knows that God works in decades, not days, millennia, and not months. See, that's where we have to slow down a bit. Because we are trained by everything in our culture particularly to, to believe that God is a microwave and not a slow cooker. Right? And we were taught, we want, you know, immediate gratification. And God is not a God of immediate gratification. And I know this is really hard for you guys at your quarter-life crisis because you want to know God's will for your life. You want to know it right now. You want to know God's purposes. You want to know God's plan. And you want to know it before you have to, you know, sign up for your courses next semester would be great. And, and you need to know this at midlife too. You need to know as, as, as you're seeing now, I've lived half my life and I've got the other half in front of me and what am I going to do with this remaining time that I have? And I haven't seen, sometimes I'm doubting because I sometimes doubt and wonder whether God's plan and purpose for me, I haven't really seen anything come to fruition that looks like an abundant life. And you have to know that God is the God of decades, not days, millennia, not months. He's a slow cooker, not a microwave. And it will change your perspective in your life because you'll stop demanding that God does everything immediately for you. The purpose of your faith is not that you have all your problems solved immediately at all. God may lead you into decades of wandering. So, one who worships El Alam knows that God works in decades, not days, millennia, not months, and rejoices in the small tastes of the promises, knowing that our full inheritance awaits in eternity. So, so, so listen, Isaac is not the child of the promise. Yes, Isaac is the child God has promised, but he is not the son who has been promised ultimately. There will be another son in this story born 1,900 years later. To a, in another miraculous birth, there will be another son born to a virgin, not to a barren woman, but to a virgin. And he is the promise, Jesus Christ. And so Isaac is just a taste of God's beginning to unravel the leaves starting to bud on the tree, but he is not, he is not the promised son. He is not the one through whom God will bless all nations of the earth. That is Jesus Christ. Abraham gets a little well in the land, but that's not the fulfillment of the promise. That's a foretaste. That's a, that's a cup of water compared to the ocean of God's mercy that will come when Jesus comes and claims the land for himself. When he creates a new heaven and new earth where righteousness and justice dwell. This is but a taste of the promise. It is not the fulfillment of the promise. And that's what you got to remember when you're serving this El Olam, this God of the ages, 
to rejoice and to celebrate even in the taste of the promises that you see in your life. But remember, this is not the fulfillment. Remember, this is not the fulfillment. God may give you a season of your life. He gave me a season of my life. I, I remember uh, when I was in university and I, uh, I had gone through a really, really hard time. And then I had like three months where it was like everything fell into place. And that never happens. Where everything was like, every day I woke up and was like, whoa, what, what are you going to do today, God? And then something else good would happen. And I'd be like, that was good. That never happens. But it, but it happened for like that three or four months. And I was like, wow, you know? A little jump in my step and going. And I knew it was all going to come crashing down sometime. And it did all come crashing down at one point. But man, be excited and be happy and, and celebrate those moments of your life where you see I've got a taste and I've got a glimpse and I've got a glimmer of this eternal promise that is yet to come. And I'll tell you what, we as a church give you an opportunity every weekend to do so when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. You might, might be like, what? But we celebrate the Lord's Supper every week. We, we, we take a little cracker, right? And we take a little cup and that is not a feast. It's not a feast at all. But it points us back to Jesus as he gave his body, as he gave his life, he gave his blood on us. So it points us back to the author of our salvation. And it points us forward to the finisher of our salvation, Jesus Christ, who will come and he says, man, I'm not even going to drink the fruit of the vine again until I drink it with you anew in my kingdom. And on that day, on that day, everything's going to change. And on that day, we will come into our inheritance. And on that day, all of God's promises will be fulfilled. And on that day, no more tears will be coming down of our eyes. On that day, there will be no more fears, no more sorrow, no more worry. We will live with him forever in righteousness, justice, and peace. And that is the hope we have. And until that day, you can rejoice in the little things of life and you can plant trees and you can say, God, I remember, God, that even though I plant this little sapling, I remember that your promises work out through history and I wait for the day, O oh Lord, when I will see in your kingdom the tree of life in full bloom. That's the day we long for. That's the day we wait for. And so... A person who worships El Olam knows that God works in decades, not days, millennia, not months, rejoices in those small tastes of the promise, knowing that our full inheritance awaits in eternity, and knows that until our sojourn is complete, more tests of our faith await us. See, here's the thing. Chapter 21 sets us up for next week when we look at chapter 22. We all know it's coming in chapter 22. Chapter 22 is when the Lord speaks to Abram and says, take your son, your only son, your son who you loved, the son of Sarah, Isaac, that son. Take him up to the mountain and sacrifice him. If you don't know the story, you may have just got shocked in your seat right there. That's what's coming next week. Shane, you get to preach that, so good luck. <laughs> but know that until our sojourn is complete, more tests of faith await us. And I mean, I sincerely believe and I actually rejoice that God gives Abraham chapter 21 before the test in chapter 22. 
right? That, that Abraham is brought to a place where he sees a taste of that promise. He gets a glory in the promise. And he, and he learns in chapter 21, though I have been wandering and walking for 25 years, I serve the God of the ages. I serve the God of eternity. I serve El Alam. And he recognized, he comes to learn in chapter 21, okay, God, your promise is going to be worked out. I may not even ever live to see the fulfillment. Jesus said, remember what Jesus said about Abraham? Abraham longed to see this day when Jesus, the Son of God, would come. So Abraham plants this tree and said, I might not ever see this fulfillment, but I'm celebrating this glimpse of your glory and the promise that you've given. And we recognize as we serve El Alam, we know that until our journey, our sojourn is complete, more tests of faith await. And so I encourage you, I encourage you, church, when God gives you a glimpse of his glory, I don't know if you need to plant a tree, but maybe you need to plant a tree. I looked up this week. I was going to get a whole bunch of trees to give to you guys if you wanted them, but the city stopped their program. I, I know the city used to have this program where you could go and get a bunch of saplings. And I was going to have them at the back, but uh, they don't have that program anymore. That's was too cheap to buy a tree for everybody. You can still call the city and set up the city to come and deliver you a tree for free. So you know that. So maybe you need to plant a tree as a reminder that God is going to work his purposes out through lifetimes and millennia. Even if you don't plant a tree, I would encourage you guys to journal or to in some way celebrate. When you get through those seasons of your life where you're saying, man, God, I know this is not the full inheritance of the promise. I know that's coming in your kingdom. I know that's coming in eternity. But God, I celebrate right now. Thank you for the season. That is our God we serve, El Olam, 25 years. Our life is still trying to get up that great big hill of hope or destination. But we pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven.